Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you, Lord, for gathering, gathering us together as your people. Thank you for your word. Thank you for this privilege that is ours to study your word together. I pray that you would uh, open our hearts and minds to receive uh, these truths that you have in store for us and that uh, by your spirit, these truths would be impressed on, on our hearts and minds that we would uh, obey them and live them out in the coming days. Thank you for what you will do. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. So we spent the last, uh, it's been a few weeks, uh, so we spent about five weeks examining uh, the life of King Hezekiah. So starting this week and uh, next week, we will examine the life of his son, King Manasseh. Uh, we'll be looking at uh, two main passages. The first one uh, will be in 2 Kings chapter 21. So if you turn your Bibles with me to 2 Kings chapter 21 verses 1 through 9 and uh, this passage has a parallel passage in 2 Chronicles chapter 33 verses 1 through 9 but uh, we will uh, be in 2 Kings chapter 21. I do have an outline that's in the back. Uh, we will use that for our time this morning. So 2 Kings 21 verses 1 through 9. Manasseh was 12 years old when he began to reign, and he reigned 55 years in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Hephzibah, and he did what was evil in the sight of the Lord according to all the despicable practices of the nations whom the Lord drove out before the people of Israel. For he rebuilt the high places that Hezekiah his father had destroyed and erected altars of Baal and made an Asherah as Ahab king of Israel had done and worshiped all the host of heaven and served them. And he built altars in the house of the Lord of which the Lord had said in Jerusalem will I put my name and he built altars for all the host of heaven in the two courts of the house of the Lord. And he burned his son as an offering and used fortune telling and omens and dealt with mediums and with necromancers. He did much evil in the sight of the Lord, provoking him to anger. And the carved image of Asherah that he had made, he set in the house of which the Lord said to David and to Solomon his son, in this house and in Jerusalem, which I have chosen out of all the tribes of Israel, I will put my name forever. And I will not cause the feet of Israel to wander any more out of the land that I gave to their fathers, if only they will be careful to do according to all that I have commanded them, and according to all the law that my servant Moses commanded them. But they did not listen. And Manasseh led them astray to do, to do more evil than the nations had done before whom the Lord destroyed before the people of Israel. So Manasseh was the firstborn son of King Hezekiah. And he began his reign at a very young age. He was only 12 years old when he began to reign. Um, he began his reign as a co-regent with his father. So the first 10 years of his life from the age of 12 to 22, 
he co-ruled with his uh, father Hezekiah, and thereafter, he was the sole ruler for the next 45 years. So he had a long, lengthy reign. He started out young, and he ruled for well over half a century. Now, the name Manasseh, uh, in Genesis, Joseph named his firstborn son Manasseh. And he did so, saying, God made me forget all my hardship and all my father's house. So the name Manasseh means uh, to forget or to cause one to forget. So Hezekiah, like Joseph of old, had endured uh, much trials and afflictions in his own life. He had inherited a, uh, an apostate kingdom from his wicked father Ahaz. He had, the, he had the arduous task of revival, bringing revival and reformation into the land. And then he had the Assyrian invasion, uh, which occurred during his reign. And they conquered a large swath of land uh, in the kingdom of Judah. And right in the midst of the Assyrian invasion, he was given the terminal diagnosis, uh, and uh, he was not given uh, much, much time to live. So after the Lord had rescued Hezekiah from all those afflictions and trials, God had blessed him with uh, a son, Manasseh. And uh, Hezekiah must have thought to himself, Yahweh has blessed me with a son, causing me to forget all the pains and sorrows of my former years, and he may have uh, named his son Manasseh for that reason. So let's examine the life of Manasseh himself. Uh, that, that's gonna take uh, the lion's share of our time um, because that's the lion's share of the text that's before us. So we will uh, handle it faithfully. Now Manasseh was not a good king. He did not follow in the footsteps of his righteous father Hezekiah Instead, he fully rebelled against Yahweh, and he did, undid all the, all the religious reforms that Hezekiah had enacted. We're told in verse 2, he did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, according to all the despicable, despicable practices of the nations. So what form did this apostasy take place? The text tells us from starting in verse 2 all the way to verse 9. First, Manasseh, he rebuilt the high places which his father had destroyed. Now, God had ex uh, exclusively forbidden worship at such high places. He had set his name and allowed his Shekinah glory to dwell in the Holy of Holies in the Solomonic Temple. And he was to be worshipped in that temple alone. Yet, Manasseh ensured that that would not be the case during his reign. He also erected the, uh, the altars to Baal, and he made an Asherah. The Lord had explicitly forbidden this as well. In Deuteronomy 16, he had forbidden uh, the, the, uh, the building or uh, the, the making of such objects, of worship, objects for worship. And he reintroduced cult prostitution and sexual immorality, which was uh, part of the ritualistic uh, practice. Uh, that was part and parcel of the worship of these pagan deities. And this was just the beginning. He not only built altars in the community, but he built those altars right in the very house of God, both in the inner and the outer court. And he worshiped all the host of heaven. 
Commentator Donald Wiseman says, quote, astral worship of the starry host of heaven was practiced throughout the Palestine, throughout Palestine. And it was also uh, part of the worship of the Assyrians. So Manasseh adapt, adopted uh, the worship practices of the surrounding nations, but also of, of the conquering nation, Assyria. By now, uh, the kingdom of Judah had become a vassal state uh, of the kingdom of Assyria. And instead of rebelling against the kingdom of Assyria, Manasseh decided to adopt the worship practices and became more in bed with the Assyrians. The Lord condemned this as well. Through prophet Jeremiah, he says, do you not see what they are doing in the cities of Judah and in the streets of Jerusalem? The children gather wood, the fathers kindle fire, and the women knead dough to make cakes for the queen of heaven. And they pour out drink offerings to other gods to provoke me to anger. So along with these wicked practices, he engaged in fortune-telling and the use of mediums and necromancers. So as if all of this were not enough to provoke uh, the holy God to anger, Manasseh does not stop there. He engages in the abominable practice of child sacrifices in the worship of Molech, and he does so in the Valley of Himen. Now, scholars are divided as to whether the, the name Molech refers to the ritual of the child sacrifice or it referred to the deity itself uh, to whom such child sacrifices were made. Nonetheless, uh, history and uh, uh, scholarship confirms the existence of such child sacrifices having, uh, having been practiced not only among the Phoenicians in Carthage, but also among the Canaanites. Now, this was, this was not just one instance. This infanticide, child sa sacrifices which were done, was not just one instance during the, uh, the reign of Manasseh. There was a history of in infanticide dating back to ancient civilizations long before Judah became a kingdom. Uh, if you recall, Manasseh's grandfather, Ahaz, he introduced the practice of child sacrifice into the southern kingdom. In Exodus, uh, Pharaoh had commanded the slaying of the uh, male Hebrew children at the time of uh, Moses' birth. And in Deuteronomy, God specifically warned about this abominable practice, saying, For they even burned their sons and their daughters in fire to their gods. So child sacrifice was already prevalent among the nations before Israel uh, settled in the land of Canaan and established itself as a kingdom. At the time of Jesus' birth, King Herod ordered the slaying of every male child two years and younger. The prophet Jeremiah prophesied of this, of this infanticide. He said, a voice was heard in Ramah, uh, weeping and loud lamentation, Rachel weeping for her children. She refused to be comforted because they were no more. Shortly after uh, the overturning of the Roe v. Wade decision, Supreme Court decision, 
um, George Grant, a PCA pastor, he wrote, he penned an article for Ligonier. And in that article, he says, quote, since the fall, men have contrived ingenious diversions to satisfy their depraved passions, and child killing has always been chief among them, end quote. And he goes on to cite there, uh, examples of ancient civilizations, such as Egypt, Persia, Greece, and Rome, that sanctioned infanticide as part of their daily lives. And it continues to this very day. So there is a clear parallel between infanticide, which was practiced uh, in ancient civilizations, and abortion, which is practiced this very day. Dr. Andrew White, a Christian physician, he published an article entitled Abortion and the Ancient Practice of Child Sacrifice in the Journal of Biblical Medical Ethics. And in this article, Dr. White draws a clear parallel between infanticide during ancient times and abortion uh, our, during our modern times, our present day. And uh, there are two parallels that he brings about. In both cases, in the case of infanticide and abortion, the parents or the parent are willing to actually kill their children or their child. And the second parallel is in both infanticide and abortion, sexual relations are the reason for uh, the occurrence of both. Extramarital relationships, whether it be in uh, fornication or, or adultery, is the cause of the vast majority of pregnancies that end in abortion in, America's, uh, in American society. And back in the ancient civilizations, be it uh, during the time of Manasseh or among the Canaanites, prostitution cults were co closely associated with the worship of Baal and Moloch. So the children that were born from such uh, cultic sexual relationships may likely have been the victims of the child sacrifices. They had to be discarded. They were not wanted. Uh, so they ended up becoming uh, the ones uh, or some of the children who were sacrificed uh, to Moloch. So we begin to see a downward spiral in the kingdom of Judah. We're not talking about Edom. Or, or Ammon, or Moab, uh, some uh, pagan, wicked nation, but we're talking about the Old Covenant Church. We're talking about the children of God who were given the law of God, who were tasked to be the light and the salt to the nations that uh, were surrounding them. So how did the covenant people of Judah uh, spiral to this point where infanticide was part of their daily life. How did, how did they get to this point? We have to do a little bit of a history uh, to understand how they, how they got here. So turn with me to First uh, uh, Samuel chapter eight. First Samuel chapter eight. And here, um, just to give you a context, uh, Samuel had served as the judge in Israel for many years. This was towards the end of his life, and both his sons were wicked. They, uh, the, Samuel knew it, uh, the people of Israel knew it, and they did not want uh, 
either of his sons to follow after Samuel and be their judge. They had disqualified themselves from being their judge. So starting in verse 4, we read, Then all the elders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel at Ramah and said to him, Behold, you are old, and your sons do not walk in your ways. Now appoint for us a king to judge us like all the nations. So up to this point, the nation of Israel was a theocracy. God was their king. He was their sovereign ruler. And yet, even though the Lord had reigned over them in perfect righteousness, they wanted to be like other people, like other nations. They rejected God as their king. Um, and the Lord said to Samuel, Obey the voice of the people in all that they say to you, for they have not rejected you, but they have rejected me from being king over them. So after having said that to the people through Samuel, God further forewarns the people of what is coming if they go down this road of getting a human king. So God forewarns the people that uh, the under, basically the underlying descriptor of having a human being as their king is three words, surmised in three words. He will take. He will take your land. He will take your daughters to be his concubines, to, to do various works for him. He will take your uh, men to be his uh, soldiers. You will take, he will take, he will take. That is repeated uh, three, six times over in this passage. And what a contrast this is from God, who gave, who gave, who gave, and ultimately he would give him a king, the king of kings, the Lord of lords, Jesus Christ, and yet the people would reject him, we ha saying, we have no king but Caesar. So despite the warnings, the people re uh, refused to obey the voice of Samuel, and they said no. But there shall be a king over us that we may also, we also may be like all the nations. So by the time Manasseh comes to the throne, the taking gets even worse. The kings not only take the land, the women, the men, uh, their possessions, but now they're taking their children for what? to kill them to the sacrifice of pagan gods, Moloch and other, and other gods. So it gets really bad. So Manasseh's reign is surmised in this statement, which is uh, said in both the historical narratives in Kings and Chronicles, saying, he did much evil in the sight of the Lord, provoking him to anger. Moreover, Manasseh set, shed very much innocent blood, and Manasseh and the people paid no attention to the Lord through his prophets. The Jewish historian Josephus says this of Manasseh, quote, he, barbar he barbarously slew all the righteous men that were among the Hebrews, nor would he spare the prophets, for he every day slew some of them, till Jerusalem was overflown with blood. Now commentators are silent on this matter. 
re you recall that Prophet Hezekiah, uh, Prophet Isaiah, excuse me, had been the prophet during a majority or all of um, King Hezekiah's reign. And also he had preceded uh, Hezekiah and he was the prophet during the reigns of other kings. So he, uh, uh, ancient tradition, uh, Judeo-Christian tradition holds that Isaiah was also the prophet during the reign of King Manasseh. And it was during his reign that uh, uh, Isaiah met his death. Uh, that Manasseh had commanded uh, Isaiah to be slain, and he was slain being sown, uh, sawn into two at his command. So this wicked government of Manasseh must beg of us the question, what is government? What is the role of government? What is the function of government? Did Manasseh, the power that Manasseh had to do all these things, was it within himself? Was it inherent? Or was it something that was given to him? Was it something that, that he had acquired? So we'll spend the, uh, the next few minutes examining government and its role, uh, its source, its role, uh, the evil that government has become, and human history's testament to that. And we'll look at some illustrations of, of various human governments. Uh, so let's begin uh, here with uh, Romans chapter 13. Turn with me to Romans chapter 13, and we'll look at the first five verses. Romans 13, starting in verse 1. Let every person be, sub be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has commanded, and those who resist will incur judgment. So we see here clearly that God is the source of all authority, and he delegates that authority to human rulers and civil magistrates, and Manasseh is no exception to that. God had foreordained Manasseh to reign over his covenant people. We're told in this passage that the governing authority is God's servant for your good, and Manasseh was tasked to be uh, the ruler of God's covenant people, to be the civil magistrate, if you will, for, God, for the good of God's people, and yet uh, he did end up doing the exact opposite. So what is the role of government? Uh, for this portion, I, I looked at, I um, listened to R.C. Sproul's teaching series, The Church and the State, and it's available free uh, on Ligonier.org, I commend that to, um, uh, uh, for you to listen, because it, he did a really good job on that. So in that teaching series, he asks, R.C. Sproul asks, what is government in its most elementary fundamental form? And he states, government can be defined in one word, force. Specifically, it's legal force, uh, and 
its legal force to the, uh, towards what end? Towards the preservation of life. So the primary function of government, as ordained by God, is to protect, sustain, and maintain the sanctity of life. We're told in Romans 13, for rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Would you have no fear of the one who is in authority? Then do what is good, and you will receive his approval. For, his God, for he is God's servant for your good. That's, well, that's all well and good. Uh, we like our governments as long as they stay out of our private lives. Uh, we, we do our due diligence as long as governments are functioning uh, for the good of the people. So what happens, how do we respond uh, when governments go really bad, go really uh, uh, do evil things such as the government of Manasseh? Uh, R.C. Sproul goes on to cite a certain scholar, a biblical scholar named Oscar Kuman. And uh, this biblical scholar here wrote a book entitled The State in the New Testament. And it was published shortly after the end of World War II. And in this work, uh, Dr. Kuman, he argues that there are link-ups uh, link or connections historically between evil satanic forces and human governments. If you turn with me to Ephesians chapter 6, verses 10 through 12. We'll look at that passage together. Ephesians chapter 6, verses 10 through 12. Excuse me. Specifically, we'll be looking at verse 12. Verse 10. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic uh, powers of this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. So citing this passage that we just read together, R.C. Sproul says, he argues, quote, human governments can become demonized as it were, can become instruments of these powers, of these principalities and powers, of these cosmic forces in the heavenly realms. Um, and they, get, they can get demon, demonized to such an extent that they will unleash all kinds of devilry into this world. And we have various illustrations of that. Uh, Nero, for example, the ap apocalypse of Revelation was written to Christians who were under the brutal persecution of the Roman Empire at the helm of Nero. And there are serious scholars to, who argue that the beast that's mentioned numerous times in the book of Revelation uh, was the Emperor Nero. In fact, his nickname his popular nickname that was uh, uh, known throughout the empire was the beast. His Latin name numerically added up to the number 666, 666. 
And history is testament as to how he personally murdered members of his own family. And he uh, uh, sanctioned the killings, the slayings of numerous Christians in very creative ways. And we also have the example of Adolf Hitler and Nazi Germany. It is documented that Adolf Hitler and his men were involved in cultic satanic practices. Hitler had written in his diary of the personal covenant that he had made with Satan, the symbol of his new kingdom of the Aryan race that would compete with the kingdom of God was the twisted cross or the Hawken cross, the swastika. It became the emblem of the Nazi regime responsible for the deaths of countless millions. So keeping that in mind, let's return to Manasseh. Now by all indications, Manasseh had a godly upbringing. Righteous Hezekiah was his father. We have every reason to believe that Hezekiah raised his son uh, in the fear and admonition of the sovereign king, Yahweh. Manasseh also had the influence of other godly men for, from his father's court and prophets like Isaiah, who he had slain. But Yahweh says this of Israel's future kings. He had anticipated, nothing takes God from, by surprise. He not only foreknows, he foreordains whatsoever things to, uh, to come to pass. And he had foreordained that Israel will ultimately reject him and want a human king. So having foreordained so, he had commanded the nation of Israel to do this, uh, referring specifically to the human king. This human king is to write for himself in a, book, in a book a copy of his law that he read it all the days of his life, that he may learn to fear the Lord his God by keeping all the words of his law and these statues and doing them. So as stipulated by God in Deuteronomy, Manasseh was commanded and expected to know, memorize the law of God and to abide by it in how he lived his life personally, but also his, how he govern, governed the nation of Israel, uh, the, na the kingdom of Judah as covenant people. Yet Manasseh did not do that. He rejected God. He rejected his holy law, and he forsook all his godly heritage. He willingly chose to become an instrument of evil rather than good, causing great harm to those under his authority. So what do we take away from this? How do we apply this, what we have studied about Manasseh and about the wickedness and the evil that he had brought in, uh, uh, during his reign. What do we take away from this? How do we apply it to our lives? The first point of application is, and it's, it's readily before us, is the sinfulness of sin, the evil that resides within us. The Word of God says the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? We see that in Manasseh, that one can bear the sign of God's covenant, yet totally reject the God of that covenant whose sign that person bears. 
Now, Scripture bears testimony of many of Manasseh, the sons of Eli, the sons of Samuel, the sons of David, children who are circumcised outwardly in the flesh, but not inwardly in the spirit. May we, be, may we ever be watchful over our children, not only as parents, but as a covenant community, giving them a regular diet of the word of God. May we ever seek our Lord to circumcise their hearts, taking out their hearts of stone and granting them a heart of flesh toward saving faith and repentance. The task is heavy, the burden is hard, but God has told us, take your yoke upon me, upon you, for my yoke is light. And he will grant us the grace to do so as parents and also as his covenant church. The second point of application from this is that we ought to guard our hearts against idolatry. Now, we may not be worshiping Molech or Baals or making objects of worship such as that, but idolatry comes in various forms in our lives, doesn't it? It can be good things like our jobs, wealth, our children, uh, and various other things. In 1 John chapter 5, verse 21, which was written, by the way, as, as you see from, uh, from the passage to New Testament saints and by extension to all of us, little children, keep yourselves from idols. And how do we do that? How do we keep ourselves from the various idols that are vying uh, for our attention, vying for our worship? We do that through the means of grace that God has afforded us. His word, prayer, fellowship, accountability of our fellow saints. John Owen, in his book, Apostasy from the Gospel, reminds us of three great, reminds us of three great truths. It's a bit of a lengthy quote, but it's well worth our attention. He says, it is a great mercy, a great privilege to be enlightened with the doctrine of the gospel and to have its truths impressed on our minds by the inward work of the Holy Spirit. Second, this great mercy and privilege may be lost by the sin of neglect, which will serve only to increase the sinfulness and condemnation of those who were once made partakers of this privilege. Third, where there is a total neglect of this privilege, of this great privilege, with not, without any attempt to grow in the knowledge of the gospel, the conditions of such persons is very dangerous and could lead to final apostasy from which they will find it impossible to repent. The third point of application that I have for us is how should we, how should we as individual Christians and as the covenant people of God respond to evil rulers who are placed in authority over us? I'll refer back to a quote uh, from Oscar Kuman, who had uh, authored this book, The State in the New Testament. He says, quote, Thus in the cross of Christ, the relationship between Christ and Caesar stands at once in the beginning and at the center of the Christian faith. 
This does not mean that the church must of, necess must of necessity be persecuted by the state. It does mean, however, that it must always reckon with the fact that it can be persecuted by the state. The cross of Christ should lead the church in all its deliberations about the relationship to church of of the relationship of church and state, not just in its negative aspects, but in its positive aspects as well, end quote. So you see our response to the state as individual Christians and as his covenant people, the church must be gospel driven. We pray for those who are in authority over us. We are subject to them for the Lord's sake as God had ultimately instituted them uh, as his servants for our good. But when the state does err, and when they, when I'm saying err, when they err from uh, God's biblical directive, from the word of God, they command us to do something or they legislate something that is contrary to God's word, then it is our task as Christians and as uh, his covenant people to stand up for what is biblical first and foremost and to stand against the state and uh, instances such as in the case of abortion, the redefinition of marriage, the redefinition of uh, uh, gender and sexual identities. We stand up and we remind the state not to be the church, but rather to be the state. And we continue to be the church, giving them the gospel and praying for them that they too would embrace the gospel as we have. And so by doing so, by doing all of this, as Peter says, we will, in our hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy. That is all I have. I did not uh, anticipate time for any questions, uh, so I didn't draft any questions for you. Lucky for me, <laughs> I didn't have to uh, facilitate that, but any, uh, we do have about five minutes, I think. Any questions or comments? Uh, Good. I love this class. <laughs> no questions is good. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you, Lord, for all your many blessings in our lives. Thank you for your word. Lord, I pray that you would grant us the grace to be your covenant people, to be your covenant children, to guard our hearts against idols, and to be faithful, not only being your children, in obedience to you, but also in raising our children that you have given us, biologically and spiritually, in the fear and admonition of you. May it not be said of us, Lord, as it, as it was said of Eli, that you have honored your sons more than you have honored me. And I pray that you'd continue to prepare our hearts for worship. I pray and ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.